Tonight's reading is from Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's word. Let me have my welcome. Good to see you. My name is uh, Matt Fuller. Let's uh, pray as we begin this evening. Our Father, many of those may be familiar words to us. The subject of marriage, it's certainly familiar news to us. It's all over the press. It's one that many of us think about. And we want to submit our thinking to you. We want you to define how we should live in every area of our lives, including in all our relationships. So please be at work doing that this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, marriage is in a bit of a mess. Um, culturally, in the West and the UK, we don't seem to know what it is anymore. So last month, Boris Johnson observed, uh, marriage has been here since the Stone Age, and now it needs to move beyond the Stone Age. I can't see what all the fuss about gay marriage is for. It's like odd logic of the Stone Age, but um, anyway, there we go. But that's, I think that would be fairly common, wouldn't it? Confu- what is marriage? We find ourselves for the first time, probably in our Western civilization, having to actually define what marriage is. It's always kind of known before. But now, well, it's less clear. We're not quite there yet. But uh, in Brazil, again last month, was the first uh, marriage or civil partnership, technically, between uh, one man and two women. Two women. Uh, the, uh, the officiator described it as a polyfidelitous marriage. I think that's made up. And I don't know what that is in Brazilian, but a polyfidelitous marriage, faithfulness with multiple, I guess, is the logic. Well, they've lived together for a few years, so they have a one bank account between the three of them. What's wrong with the three of them being married? And next month, she said, I'm marrying five, three men and two women together in another polyfidelitous marriage. Wow. Why is that wrong? I mean, once you start to 
throw away or reject a biblical view of marriage? Why, why would there be a problem for that? With that? And marriage, you know, people, people say it's outdated. So certainly there's a pace of change which is phenomenal over the last 20 years. 20 years ago, about 15% of the UK would cohabit before marrying. Uh, now it's 80% of folk in the UK cohabit before they marry. Uh, again, over the last 20 years, the number of single men and women marrying each year has halved. So 20 years ago, each year, 4.5% of the unmarried population married every year. Now it's 2% of the unmarried population marry every year. That's a dramatic shift in 20 years. And of course, part of that is people no longer, no longer marry. They simply cohabit. But the stats don't even themselves out. Marriage has gone down a lot and cohabitation has gone up. But actually, when you compare the numbers, they don't even out. And so statistically, there are a lot more single people in the UK than there were 20 years ago. Hundreds of thousands more people are single than would have been the case. And not marrying. That's interesting. But the pace of change is phenomenal. So actually in the midst of all this change and uh, perhaps confusion about how you define marriage and such things, it's all helpful to spend just a few weeks uh, thinking about the topic uh, broadly. And uh, we're going to spend three weeks looking at myths. So tonight's myths about marriage. Uh, then next week will be myths about gender. And then the final week, uh, myths about sex. So myths is what we're thinking about. Things that the world would say which are not really very helpful. Don't believe the myths. So um, what we're doing tonight, I wouldn't in any sense pretend I'm going to uh, give you an exposition of Genesis 2, work out and teach everything that's there. I am not. I'm not intending to. I want to do something very simple. I want to make two biblical assertions and then use them to undermine some myths. So I'll make two assertions. And under each one, I'm going to attack two myths. That's what we're going to do. Then we'll go home. It'll take about three hours. <laughs> but it sounds simple. I can't even find the outline. Here we go. Um, so first then, the purpose, first statement that I want to make. First biblical statement. The purpose of marriage is service. The purpose of marriage is service. Now question, it may seem too obvious to even ask. Uh, why did God make marriage? I mean, it's there. I mean, it may be obvious, isn't it? Why did God make marriage? I mean, it's not essential for reproduction. Other creatures manage to reproduce without being married, or indeed having a male and female. We could have been amoeba-like and um, self-replicated. Uh, we could have done that. God could have done that. It's not necessary for reproduction, marriage. It's not necessary for us, for, excuse me, for happiness. Because there's only a temporary arrangement, a man and a woman being married. So when Jesus is addressed on the issue in um, uh, Matthew 22, it says very clear, there's no marriage in eternity. So Matthew 22, 30, at the resurrection says Jesus, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be much like the angels in heaven. So marriage is only a temporary affair. In heaven, everyone's blissfully happy. There's no marriage. That's not a correlation. 
Why did God make marriage? Not essential for our happiness. Not essential for the human race. He could have made us differently. Why did he make marriage? Well, the answer of Genesis 1 and 2, we're only looking at Genesis 2 really, is quite simply he made it for ministry or for service. The purpose of marriage is service. Internally, as husband and wife serve one another, but more importantly, externally. So the husband and wife come together and serve the world. A biblical marriage, one plus one equals three. A man and a woman come together and are better able to serve as a consequence. Marriage is given for service. Now we're not going to take too long. Let me hope to demonstrate this fairly quickly. Just in Genesis chapter 2. There are other places we could do this. But just in Genesis chapter 2. Look down with me. Genesis chapter 2. We picked up at verse 15 from where uh, Zewan read. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. There is Adam's task. Just a little bit earlier the task was described in other language. Back in chapter 1. Verses um, uh, 27, 28. Chapter 1, 27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, here's what you need to do. Be fruitful and increase in number, reproduce. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So Adam, two things you need to do. Procreation, domestication. You need to be fruitful, make more gardeners to take care of the garden, and domesticate, cut down the weeds, make it more productive. Procreation, domestication, those are the two things I'm, I'm bringing you together to do. So Adam is given his task, but it's in chapter 2, verse 15. Put him in the garden to work it, take care of it, domesticate it. Adam is given his command, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat, but you must eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Verse 18, the Lord makes an observation. The Lord God said, verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. God makes that observation. Adam does not sit there singing, I'm lonesome tonight. Adam doesn't even know that. The Lord says it's not good for him to be alone. Why? Because he's been given a task, procreation, domestication. You can't take care of the garden, work it, on your own, Adam. You need someone to help you. So the Lord makes one suitable helper who is female. Verse 18, he created one who is literally according to the one opposite to him. They didn't translate it that way. That's a bit of a mouthful. I will, according to the one opposite to him, make. It's Yoda speak. But that's... That's kind of Hebrew, that's how it works. And yet, it's quite, um, it's a nice emphasis, isn't it? One according to the opposite of him. One who will complement him. One who will make him more than he is before. I'm going to make one who added to Adam's one makes three. They'll be better together. I'll make one to complement him. A helper, a helper in no way inferior but a partner that allows Adam to do these two things, procreation, domestication. So together, Adam and Eve can serve God's purpose of creating a human race that fills and subdues the earth. The purpose of marriage is to serve externally, to serve outside of the marriage. 
Every marriage needs a mission. Broadly, the mission of marriage is to serve the Lord God in his world. But actually, if you're married, you've got to work out how, what is your mission? How is your one plus one making three to serve God in his world? If you're not yet married, the question you need to ask is, if I marry this person, will we be three? Not three in the marriage, that's polyfidelitous, not that. But will we come together in order to serve God? Will I serve God better married to this person than I can on my own? Marriage is given for service. Externally. Now, I'll come back and say more on this uh, in later weeks. It is also internally, but you come together in marriage and you help one another grow. You spur one another on in godliness. That's terrific and true. You serve internally. But still, even then, it's so you can serve better outside your marriage. It's not that you come and help one another grow in your marriage and you get more godly in your marriage and you just have a good time together. That's selfishness. You serve externally. Marriage is given for service. Now, that's even more obvious when, in one sense when you look at the trajectory of the whole Bible. Simplification. Gross simplification. But anyway, run with it. Old Testament. Marriage is the norm. To be unmarried is strange. To be without children is a curse. Old Testament. New Testament. Marriage is the norm. But singleness is good. As a single, you can serve the Lord in ways that marriage cannot. Children are good, but you can have spiritual children as well. You share the gospel, people come to faith. Just as good, exciting. There's a shift. New creation, singleness is the norm for, for all believers. And then collectively, we're married to Jesus Christ. We collectively are the bride. You see the trajectory of the Bible in that sense. Marriage is a temporary measure. It's given here and now to serve. Now, don't mishear me. I would not for any one, one moment want to devalue marriage. But I do want to dethrone it. So biblically, marriage remains God's foundational institution for humanity that should be nurtured, protected, defended. It's a wonderful thing that God has given, but not as an end in of itself. It must be subordinated to God's larger salvation purposes. Don't devalue marriage. I do want to dethrone it. Because marriage is for serving the Lord. Now, two myths that flow from that. No, they don't. Two myths that are destroyed by that. That's right. Two myths. Myth number one. Marriage will complete me. You can call this the Jerry Maguire myth. You know, the end of the film, he comes in, you know... You complete me. He says to Renee Zellweger, you know that moment? Oh, you had me at good evening or whatever it was. Um, That's the myth. You complete me. Jerry Maguire myth. Not true. Not true. It's the Hollywood myth that if I marry the right person, everything will be wonderful. Everything will go well. My life, which has got ups and downs, will just be on one uh, super highway trajectory to glorified happiness. It doesn't work that way. And yet we kind of believe it. Most of us have watched too many rom-coms, even the men. (laughs) And so we assume that just find the one and all is well. 
everything will be truly wonderful. Now the problem with that is the bar gets set so high that marriage is bound to fail. If you expect your spouse to complete you, if you expect your spouse to be the chief source of happiness in your life, you will place a burden upon them that they cannot ever achieve. You're asking too much. They'll fail. And you see it in some marriages. A lot of D's. You see disappointment. I was happier when I was single. I had more fun when I was single. Disappointment. Or dripping tap. Why is now marriage more like theirs? Why is now marriage more like my parents? Oops. And again, you just... What are you expecting? Or disengagement. As often, classically men, we could do it this way. Just spend much more time at work. Work is busy. Not that busy. But it's just easier to spend time at work. A work we can do things. A work we tick off the things on lists and we achieve them. And people tell us we're good. And at marriage, we go home to disappointment and dripping taps. And, and it happens because people have their expectations set far too high. What you need to expect in marriage is that you're two sinners coming together. And that causes problems. That will always cause problems in a marriage. So don't expect too much. Now, I think I may have unwittingly not helped here. Uh, I've observed before, and I would stand by this as being completely true. Your spouse needs to be your best friend. In this sense, they must be the one, if you're married, that you share most with that you confide with, that they know your your dreams, your aspirations, your fears. They know. And if there's anyone of the opposite sex to you that you confide more in than your spouse, you're in trouble. That's emotional adultery. That's a bad place to be. So in that sense, your spouse must be your fr- best friend. But not your only friend. That's crippling. That's stifling. It's too much. And so, ladies, you mustn't expect husbands to get excited about a trip to the hairdressers. He's meant to be my best friend, but he doesn't like it when I get my nails done and doesn't want to come with me. No. Or the other way around. On one horrific occasion 12 years ago, on my wife's birthday, I took her to see Chelsea play football. The comment, I think, was, you know, I love you very much, but you don't quite realize how badly wrong you've got tonight. (laughs) That was gracious of her. Your spouse, yes, should be your best friend, not your only friend. You always need friends of the same sex as you to do stuff with. You need boys to do boy things with. And if you're a girl, you need girls to do girl things with. Because your spouse will not complete you. They cannot. Don't expect too much of them. Got to be realistic. So don't believe the myth. Don't believe that marriage will complete me. It'll ruin your marriage if you assume that. And also, you'll just become selfish. You complete me can easily become a self-serving marriage. So Kerry, my wife and I, we try, we try to read a book on marriage every year, normally, uh, some point over Christmas, we do, you know, to help out on the marriage course in uh, January. We try to read a book on marriage uh, every year. 
there's enough to keep us going to about 178. Or, uh, there's at least there are many, many books on marriage. And good Christian ones, and lots have lots of helpful things. My concern with some is they're purely concerned with how you can improve your internal dynamics. Now, that's very useful. But it can just justify selfishness in marriage. It's just me and her, and we just need to work out what we're doing, and we just need to help one another a little bit more. Now, that's a very good thing to do. But if you're not careful, you can have a biblically justified selfishness. It's just me and my spouse, and we're fine. And unwittingly, the church gives a license to introspection and selfishness and a lack of concern for other people. Well, I fear with a number of the, some of these books. Whereas if marriage is for ministry, if marriage is for service, all of us, married, will think to ourselves, okay, we need to work on our marriage, make sure um, we're going well together, but also we need to look outside of ourselves. And that's also good for us. It's good to serve in some way together. And are we looking out for the singles, the widows, the single mothers? Are we looking out for them and bringing them into our family? Because it's not just you and me. We're part of a church family. We want to serve one another. I love Psalm 68 verse 6. God sets the lonely in families. But if marriage is just you and me and stuff everyone else, how does he do that? God sets the lonely in families. This morning, uh, uh, church this morning, we happened to get up to, uh, um, we're working our way through 1 John. We got to 1 John chapter 4, verses uh, 7 to 21. Wonderful passage about love. This is love. Uh, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Fabulous. On a... Um, on a completely unscientific poll of about uh, 50 of uh, wedding sermons I've given, probably about half are on 1 John 4. Uh, that may not be true. Um, but it's very popular to have a read at a, read at a wedding. And for good reason, because it says, here is love. Let God define love. The only problem with it is, it's not actually about marital love there. It's about church love. Churches loving one another. People in church. And actually, when you read through the New Testament, not many passages about romantic love. Hundreds, dozens about how churches should love one another seems to be a much greater priority in the New Testament. Marriage is for ministry, so don't believe the myth that marriage will complete me. No, no, it'll ruin your marriage and you'll become selfish in marriage. Don't do that. That's myth number one. Myth number two. I need someone I'm compatible with. I'm calling this the Billy Joel myth. It's maybe a little bit dated for some. But Billy Joel, I love you just the way you are. Okay, I love you. Don't go changing. Remember that? No. Okay, we run with it. Some do. Some do. Okay, the Billy Joel myth. I need someone I'm compatible with. Very helpfully, uh, uh, yesterday I found uh, a men's magazine. It claims to have a readership of 20 million worldwide. Can that be true? Does any magazine have that sort of readership? I think that's nonsense. Anyway, um, it had a very helpful article. How to know if she's compatible for you. How do you know if she's the... uh, No, that's not right. How do you know if you're compatible with her? That was it. How do you know if you're compatible with her? I had 10 questions. Most of them were, to be fair, useful questions, probably. Um... Does she like to travel? Do you like to travel? Do you have similar interests? What is her health background? I didn't really understand that one. 
I mean, her granny died. Of, well, I don't. I, really, I didn't really. To truth, I didn't understand that. Family background. What is her religious background? Interesting question. Um, what is her attitude to charitable giving? I thought it was a very interesting question to have in a men's magazine. What are her professional aspirations? How many children does she want? Uh, and a couple of others. Now, there's some wisdom to that. Asking those sort of questions wouldn't deny it. But sometimes I want someone I'm compatible with really is just a euphemism for I don't want to change. I want someone who can just fit into my life and I make no changes whatsoever. Essentially, I just want the single life with a a little bolt on. I don't want to, I want someone who's compatible with me. I don't want to change. That'd be awkward. Had a terrifically honest conversation, uh, with, um, a couple fairly recently, uh, and the wife, they were both there, and the wife said, do you know what? They've been married about three months. Do you know what? I thought the marriage would be like being single, just better. It's completely different. It's a real trade-off. Some things are better, some things are worse. I wasn't expecting that. Husband looking on, what comes next? I mean, on balance, it's good. Phew, all is well, all is well, all is well. But in one sense, there's just some helpful honesty there. And marriages go awry when someone gets married and they just try and live the single life as before, even though there's someone else that they've become one flesh with, and they think they can do everything they were, they could, did before, and want to be precisely the same sort of character they were before. Well, it'd be a disaster. You have to change in marriage. You have to. Don't go changing. Well, Billy Joel, what is that? You get older. People do change. You just can't help it. And you've got to change with one another. You can also just overplay the whole thing about compatibility. Because um, some of us just say, yeah, no, well, you know, we've been going out for a while. I just think we're really compatible. Really. So, sometimes I'm a little bit naughty. And uh, make the observation, that's because you don't know her. I'm just, I'm just, I need to clarify that point. I need to clarify that point. Because you never really know someone. When you're in those early stages, the flush of romance, you're going out, often you're, you're really excited about, well, the fact that someone's excited about you. And really until you've lived with someone for a little while and the glow wears off a little bit, you don't really know them. They're not as nice as you think they are. They're a sinner, just like you. And you'll find that out in technicolor. That's what happens over time. So, you know, I need someone I'm compatible with. Well, I don't know. You can overplay that dramatically. You know, the old story, the uh, the young son asks, Dad, is it true that in some parts of Asia, a man doesn't know his wife until he marries her? Father, son, that's always true. That's always true. And there is that sense. You can hide selfishness when you're dating. It's very easy to do in one sense. But romance fades and you have a choice in marriages. You either just run with selfishness, I'm not changing, or 
or you make progress. You either think, well, I'm not changing, and therefore you'll bump along in your marriage with a sort of constant, low-level irritation and friction and wrestling with one another, or you say, no, we need to change. I'm going to change. And you move on to a more mature love, not just the superficial, woohoo, she likes me, he likes me. The superficial is a bit too strong. But the, the, the veneer of that, you move into, I'm going to love them now. I'm going to change to love them. That's good. Marriage changes you. It's inevitable. You cannot stay the same when you're married. That's good. That's good. So two myths. The purpose of marriage is service. So don't believe the myths that marriage will complete me and I need someone I'm compatible with. Okay, there's the first statement. Let's have another one. Uh, the definition of marriage. The definition of marriage then is covenants. The definition of marriage is covenants. This um, uh, arrangement, this uh, um, uh, marriage that we see in uh, Genesis chapter 2, there are certain covenantal terms, but most clear is Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17 would say, that's a covenant. Malachi chapter 2, 14, that's a covenant that's made in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus, in Matthew 19, quotes Genesis 2, finishes his quote, they are no longer two, but one. And then Jesus adds, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Interesting little veneer Jesus has put on. What takes place in a marriage, God joins two people together, don't separate it. Because marriage is a covenant. Now, modern confusion. Uh, what is marriage? Can we have uh, gay marriage, polyfidelitous marriage? Um, human-animal marriage, can we have those sort of things? What is marriage? The issue comes because marriage is viewed as a contract rather than a covenant. So in most countries like ours, the state grants marriage licenses and certificates of divorce. So the state says, yes, here's your contract, and now you've got a different one, it's taken back. So marriage is viewed as a contract. The problem with contracts are a temporary They're conditional. Get out of them. So most of us here, I would assume, all of us, I'd assume, have a phone contract of some kind. And it's limited, it's time limited, it's for 18 months, two years. It's conditional. If I fail to pay my monthly bill to whoever they're called now, EE, if I fail to pay my bill, they cut me off. There are conditions attached to my... um, by a contract. And of course, I enter into it for mutual convenience. I get a phone, they get my money. It kind of works. And people now enter into marriage as a contract. It's time limited. Don't have to stay. If it doesn't work, get a divorce. Because it's conditional. If you don't fulfill the obligations I'm expecting, I'm out of here. If I find a better deal, a better offer, then I'm out of here. And I've, because I've entered into it just for mutual convenience. If it works for me and works for you, great. If I no longer, it does no longer work for me anymore, I'm out of here. So if you view marriage as a contract, you're in trouble. And that's how people use marriage. Just think of the language, some of the language we use for relationships. So, um, he's back in the market for a girlfriend. Back in the market, commercial term. Is she still going out with Bert? 
No, 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 no. She's, uh, she's traded up, actually, going out with Peter. Oh, okay. That sort of language, you ever hear that? She's high maintenance. She's an expensive contract to keep, that sort of thing. Yeah, but, you know, let's be honest. He's out of her league. She's too expensive. It's funny, isn't it? We just use this sort of, that sort of language gets used of relationships. It's all contractual. Is it a good deal or not a good deal? Can I, you know, can I negotiate the best deal possible? You know, really, my, what, you know, what are my, what are my assets I've got? How good a deal can I negotiate with someone of the opposite sex? Contractual sort of language. And of course, now people think, why do 80% of people cohabit? Most of those go on to marry, by the way, but uh, 80% cohabit. It's try before you buy. That's what people think, isn't it? Try before you buy. I need, if I'm going to be, um, back to this sort of thing, if I'm going to be compatible with someone, I need to work it out. I need to sort of have a little test drive. The problem is, according to the Journal of Family Psychology, if you cohabit before marriage, you are twice as likely to end up divorced than if you don't live together until you're married. It doesn't really work. Covenant is different from contract. Contract is an agreement between two parties. Does it work for you? Does it work for me? Let's have a mutually beneficial agreement. Covenant covenant is a bond between a husband and wife. One definition, a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted and entered into before God, normally consummated by sex. It's a permanent thing. It's not just you and me, does it work? Nah, I'm out of here. It's a covenant made in the sight of God. There's three involved and you don't break it. There are side exceptions to that. We're not looking at them tonight. So let's have a look at um, uh, related to that then. Some of the myths. Some of the myths that crushes. If the definition of marriage is covenant, uh, two myths. Uh, let's do these briefly. The first then, she's the one. Obviously that's the Robbie Williams myth. She's the one. She's the one for me. Because there is one. I'm just looking for the one. How do I know she's the one? People get slightly obsessed with this idea. It's a funny modern myth. The, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, heard, read about this. The latest fad of European lovers is to uh, lock a padlock to a bridge as an expression of their love. So it began in um, apparently a Federico Mocchia novel. Two lovers fastened a bicycle lock to a lamppost and threw away the key to signify their eternal love or, um, or, or whatever it is and now this is becoming incredibly popular and the more well known the historic landmark or bridge, the more burdened they are so now it's become a real problem particularly in Italy, so I read that uh, Ponte Vecchio in Florence, the Rialto in Venice are now groaning under the weight of these padlocks and uh, the councils are having to employ someone to come and cut them off on a regular basis because otherwise it's just going to knacker the bridge And of course, you think you're doing this wonderful romantic gesture, but all the while, you know, as soon as a couple walk up to the bridge, there's a hawker. You want padlock? You want padlock? You want padlock? And trying to sell them a padlock for 10 euros and making money out of it. Is that romantic? I don't think so, but you know. She's the one. And let's celebrate it with a padlock on a bridge. Is a padlock really a good metaphor for love? I'm not sure about that. But anyway... But people do get obsessed about finding the one. Often get asked, how do I know if she's the one? How do I know? 
question. Do you think you can serve God well together? Do you think one plus one will equal three? Do you think that that's a good idea? Do your friends think that you can serve God well together? Do your family think that you can serve God well together? I mean, not everyone's going to comment wisely on that, I know. But does it seem like a good idea for you? Well, in that case, go for it. Crack on. But I don't, I don't know. I'm not certain. Often a fear of commitment, I don't want to be too blunt, but a fear of commitment is a fear of trusting God. Ultimately, you come to the point, you know, it works. I think we can serve God well together. Friends look on and say that. I just don't know what will happen 30 years in the future. No. Nor do I, nor does anyone. Trust the Lord. Does it seem like a good idea today to you, to your friends, to your family? Crack on. Crack on. Do you both agree on the purpose of marriage for service? Do you both agree on the definition of marriage as covenant that you're committed to? If those are things that are in place and your Christian's committed to that, you'll work it out. You'll work the rest out. There'll be bumps and ups and downs, but you'll work the rest out. Is she the one? you just got to have those things in common. Question. Sometimes people ask as a consequence. Question. Does that mean I could just marry anyone of the opposite sex? I mean, if they're a Christian and they think that marriage is for service and you know, they're committed in a marriage covenant. I could just marry anyone. I could just find the, the person I find most annoying and marry them, couldn't I? You could. You could. But don't. Because <laughs> God also gives us wisdom. Don't make life hard for yourself. It is perverse to say, right, I'm going to really test the grace of God to change me by, by, by marrying this person who really winds me up a treat. You could do that. You'd be daft. Don't do it. Don't make life hard for yourself. But at the same time, is she the artist? Oh, serve God together, you think? Others think so? Have a go. Not have a go. Sorry, that's the wrong term, isn't it? <laughs> Crack on. <laughs> Crack on. Get married and trust God for tomorrow. Last myth. The definition of marriage is coming. Uh, last myth. I'll lose my freedom. The brave heart myth. You'll never take my freedom. I'll lose my freedom. If I marry, I just, I'm a bit nervous about that because I'll be less free than I am now. Well, yes and no. Once you've married, yes, you've lost the freedom of choosing your spouse because you've made a decision. Obviously that is true. I can't freely go off and do the things I want and I can't just whiz off and spend a year abroad without asking my spouse. No. No, you can't. No, there are some limitations, but there's a trade. Because what marriage does free you up from, slowly over time, is selfishness. Because again, either you'll just bang up against one another in marriage and have just, oh, it'll be awful, or you change for one another. And marriage frees you up, slowly, slowly, from selfishness. It frees you up from being at the mercy of your feelings. I don't feel in love with her today. So what? You made a covenant. Push on. Change the way you feel. Commit to loving her. Mm, 
I feel like I'd prefer someone else. Well, don't let your feelings shape you. You've made a promise. You're freed up from just being at the mercy of your whims, from waking up one day and feeling in a grump and there. Well, sorry, you made a commitment. That's liberating. You're now married to the one you're going to be married to for the rest of your life. So if you've got a problem, solve it. You may need help, of course, but solve the problem. Don't just pull the ripcord. So there's a trade-off in marriage. You don't lose, you lose some freedoms, but you're freed up from other things. Yeah, there's a trade. There's a trade. There's a start. Some myths about marriage. Not a, I mean, we say hundreds of things and we'll range back um, the other t- next two weeks gender sex we'll be talking about marriage again in both of them and again I, please hear me rightly I do not in any sense want to devalue marriage it is a good thing a wonderful thing that God has given but I do want to dethrone it because the Bible would say marriage is for service it's not an end in and of itself it is not the source. It is not the thing that will make you happy. Don't believe those sort of myths. Marriage is for service. Just as singleness is. For service. And therefore, above all, what you need to know, whether you're married or single, is that you're loved. You need to know that above all other things. Because only if you know the love of God in Jesus Christ... Will you, if you're married, have the grace to sustain your marriage, to keep working at you? Because otherwise you can run dry and run empty. And you look at your spouse and think, I don't feel like loving you. And you look within and think, I'm pretty exhausted of this. You need to look up. Know that you're loved by Jesus Christ and he'll give you the grace to love your spouse. And if you're single, you need to look up. Know that you're loved by Jesus Christ. And he can give the grace to be content in singleness. One of the most damaging things to any marriage is the idea, I need to be married. Cripples a marriage. Cripples singleness. You need to look up. Find your joy in Jesus Christ. Know something like a 1 John 4. This is love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's love. Greater than anything this world has seen. You need to know that. Knowing that gives you the grace to serve him. Single, married, divorced, widowed. You need to look up. We all need to see him. And we lead us in prayer together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. It's a wonderful gift that you give us. Thank you that scripturally you're very clear on what it is, what it's not. Pray that we'd become equally clear over the course of the next few weeks. And Father, we want to pray so much that the marriages here will be ones that serve you. That there be good marriages where husbands and wives love one another and challenge one another and spur one another on 
to serve outside of themselves. Father, deliver us from self-serving marriages. That's not what you want. Give us marriages that serve the church, that serve outside, we pray. Give us these sort of marriages for those who uh, look forward to marrying in the future. Father, again, shape our thinking now. So it will be those who want to serve you. We'd want to find marriage partners with whom we can serve you. And that would be the most important criteria. Father, for those of us not married who would long to be, would we serve you? Father, would we be a church where married, single, regardless, we love one another because we have the grace that comes from knowing we're loved by Jesus Christ. Prayed in his wonderful name. Amen.